Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. Remember when it said 22%, uh, you, you do remember, 22% of Americans believe that there is a moral truth or a moral law. Now, the mystery to me is why it's only 22% if 90 plus percent supposedly believe in God. If you believe in God, my argument is part of belief in God, at least the traditional Christian God, is that you believe that God is or has given us a moral law, the Ten Commandments, the commandments of Jesus, uh, the stuff in Paul's, in, in Romans. It's all through the Bible. That's what Christians believe, that there actually is a moral law. But there's, there's a disconnect here. It's not working. If you believe in God, you should believe in a moral law. But only 22% do. It's a mystery to me. It, it doesn't make any sense except bad teaching in the churches. I, I just don't understand it. Um, I, I'd love to see the stats on Islam, whether, whether they have the same problem, but I know Christianity is very strange. He basically says, you know, we're going to give you, in, in the next five weeks, we're going to look at how we justify belief in God, how we justify belief in miracles. I hope we have time to do a little bit on how we justify what's, what's the evidence for a belief in an afterlife. What's the evidence that... that uh, what Jesus said makes any rational sense? Like, is, is there evidence, historical or otherwise? Is the Bible some kind of a myth? Like, we're going to apply some test cases to the theory that, that we shouldn't be faithists, you shouldn't just believe in an afterlife or just believe in miracles or disbelieve in an afterlife or disbelieve in miracles or disbelieve the Bible or just believe it in faith. We should have reasons. So that's what we're after. We're going to look at the reasons Christians believe certain things, and other religions as well. We all, most of us, believe in an afterlife. Most of us believe, maybe we don't, maybe most of us don't believe in miracles, but I, I want to show you that there's, there's good evidence and you can refute the uh, criticisms. It's, you, can, you can do things like that. Remember, apologetics is giving the evidence for a belief, let's say in miracles, and it's also refuting or arguing against evidence against your belief. So if you've got somebody saying there can't be miracles because such and such and such, we have to refute that claim. We're going to look at a couple of the arguments for God's existence. Remember our little stat about the biologists, you know, 5.5% of biologists believing in God, the lowest among all scientists. And that seems to be where the big fight is between religion and science. It's the biologists against the so-called people who believe in creation by God. Somebody at the conference told me that um, maybe the biologists don't believe in God because they're so ticked off at all these people trying to tell them there is a God. But it, it seems to me that biology in itself is it's focused on DNA and all kinds of things. Uh, and, and there's no, because it's a naturalistic as opposed to a supernaturalistic perspective it's using, 
God isn't part of the investigation. So we have, you know, those of us who believe in God would say, if you want to believe the theory of evolution, at least consider what God's role might be in that theory. The Catholic Church, a billion people, uh, according to the Pope's latest dictum, not too long ago, said to his theologians, you can believe evolution if you like, but just make sure that you don't omit God. And that's all I'm asking. But the biologists do omit God. I want to give you a taste of what's called intelligent design. And it used to be called anthropics, the anthropic principle. And anthropic is the same word as uh, anthros, uh, human. So it, it, it's an argument that there's all kinds of coincidences, hundreds of coincidences, which led to life, human life, anthros, on this planet. You'll like that one. I mean, it, it's in the news all the time. But this is the big question, though, whether God exists or not. The other one, the one I want to look at today, it's probably the most misused and abused argument. It's not even used anymore, almost, because everybody in this culture seems to be influenced by relativism. The fact that 22% believe in a moral law kind of kills this argument. But I think the argument's valid. And I, it, despite the fact I probably shouldn't be doing this, I, I, I'm going to do it anyway, because I think the moral argument for God's existence is, is, I think it rectifies some of this cultural relativism that's out there. I think it shows you a different side of the coin that you probably haven't looked at. That belief in God can be shown to be rational based on moral arguments. Now that's what we're after. I'm not sure if you, if you're in tune with how, how we're thinking here. We're trying to justify religious belief in God. And we're going to use a moral argument today. Because a lot of people today say that I don't know um, whether there's any truth or whether there's any ethical law, but I certainly know that, that I want to do what I feel is right. And what I feel is right is what my private conscience tells me is right. It's a, it's a basic fact. We do what we think what we feel in our conscience is right. No one probably goes against what their conscience says without feeling guilty or whatever. So that if you, if you agree that you only act as your conscience dictates, that actually is an argument that God exists. These are cumulative arguments. So if you're not persuaded by 5 or 7 or 14 or 15, if you're looking for more evidence, there's a lot more. We're not going to do it here. Um, and, and, and the argument goes on between theists and atheists and skeptics and about if you believe in God, those of us who believe in a God, what can we show ourselves and the skeptics who don't believe in God that we have a reasonable faith? It's not conclusive proof is my first point. And you know, there actually is a way to do what we're doing in this class differently completely differently, instead of using proofs and trying to be reasonable and arguing, like, isn't this more logical than this? And it, your view has a fallacy, but mine doesn't. Instead of doing this, there are lots of apologists, lots of people who are trying to defend what they believe, but they do it assuming faith to start with. And, and they feel absolutely no need to go through all of these proofs for God's existence or proofs for anything else, for that matter. I think, though, that uh, for the last 2,000 years, 2,500 years since Aristotle, 
we've been using this kind of thinking. If we believe something, it should be logical, it should be rational, it should be coherent, it should be consistent. All of these logical tests, these rules, that, like the, the level tests, uh, it should be adequate, it should be the best explanation of the known facts, it should be the best explanation of the known evidence, whether it's scientific evidence, historical evidence, all of this is important. There are lots of people, though, most people in this culture don't even bother to do this. Um, I'm not sure what kind of belief that is. Um, I, I don't want to call it naive. I want to call it faithism. But it's, 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 that's what the majority do. I believe what I believe. Nothing can change my mind. We, I, I'm trying to do better here, but we are the elite. Because a lot of people say trying to prove God exists through these rational proofs that we're entering now is almost like it's the, it, it's the purview, it's, it, it, it's, the, it's the playground of intellectuals. It's not the playground of average people. But here we are. I mean, you study physics and biology here and everything else. So, I mean, th this is fair game in, a, in an intellectual environment. Most people have never heard of these arguments. Most people have no idea. Most people wouldn't understand them. That's the problem. They, they can be very difficult. We're, we're going to look at simple versions, but this may not be the way... Um, this is, this is theological stuff. Like this, is, this is the game professionals play that you, you, you're being exposed to. So if you find that this is too intellectual or too arid, too dry, and it has nothing to do with your personal faith, it, it, it's just getting around that bump. It's like, it's like you, you love music all your life and you make the mistake of becoming a music major here, and all of a sudden it's just, it, it's just studied to death, almost to the point that it's all theory. And, it's a, it's, it, and, and you start wondering, I just love music. I don't want to study all of this stuff. It's kind of the same thing as that. If, if you're already set in your belief, this simply confirms belief in God. Um, it's not going to convince anybody, probably, who isn't. And that's not, the, that's not the plan. This is scholarly debate between people who write the books, who teach the classes, who influence society that way, in a lot of ways. This is what we talk about. Like, uh, I, I don't go to conferences and become a faithist and say, I just believe in God because I believe. It feels good. It gives me a meaning. I've got to have reasons, arguments, proofs, whatever. So that's, that's the field we're looking at now. Let me start with um, the moral argument for God's existence. It's not the best argument, but it's, you know, if you put it together with five or six other arguments for God's existence, it it can make a case that belief in God is reasonable. But again, this, is, this flies in the face of this culture. That's, that's why I'm hesitating. This culture is not impressed in, in general by this one argument for some reason. Remember, I, I won't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to pull out those stats ever again, but remember the, the magic number is 22%. That's how many people believe in a moral law. Um, this, this argument goes back to at least 2,500 years to Plato, P-L-A-T-O, one of um, um, Socrates' students. It was revived by Kant, Immanuel Kant, K-A-N-T. He died in 1804, so 18th century. Immanuel Kant, who didn't like the other arguments for God's existence, will see his name a few times before the class is over because he has he has given us a skepticism, an agnosticism almost about what's really there that's kind of frightening to a lot of people. He's very influential in postmodernism and, and all of this, which has no respect for truth. 
Kant was a major philosopher. His main contribution for us in this context is not his skepticism, but his saying, I don't like your other proofs for God, but I've got a better one for you. I'm going to resurrect Plato, and I'm going to give you a moral argument for God's existence. Now, this one's really simple, so I'll, I'll give this just for your information, just so you know where we're starting. Because um, this alone, I hope, wouldn't be objected to by anyone today, but who knows? Kant says um, there are two things that no one can deny. Now, you're going to be screaming, I deny it, in a minute, but this is what he says. I have to tell you the context here is that this culture just zoomed along for 15, 16, 17, 18, almost 1900 years. No problem. Rational thinking, we believed in God, we believed in a moral law that God gave us, like a right and a wrong. And then it all came crashing, not down, but there's this huge dispute now with this postmodernism, this new age spirituality, but especially postmodern skepticism about anything that's, that has the word objective related to it, like something that's external to the human being. We're in a culture in the last hundred years that has rejected not only God, but a moral law. So here's somebody writing 200 years ago who had a different understanding. This represents our whole history. And now it's, it's, it's being disputed by, by, by this, this culture that we're in. Now, Kant says there's two things that no one um, um, uh, can ignore. He says two, two things that fill me with awe and wonder. The first one is the starry heavens above. And the second one is the moral law within. Is there a human being alive who doesn't believe, for instance, that... There's five of these examples. I'll give you a couple of them. That we should act only so that our acts were to become universal. We'd want everybody to act that way. That's, that's the sense we feel. Treat others as we would like to be treated. Buddha said that. Jesus said that. Confucius said that. It's basic. It's a human feeling. We, want it, we should treat others. We ought to treat others. That's what the moral law is. It uses words like should and ought. There's a moral obligation. We feel a conscience to act so that we treat other people as we would want to be treated. We should treat other people as, as ends in themselves, not as means to our ends, not just use them for our purposes. Now, this, like, I, you can scream at that if you like or think about it a bit, but I, I, this, is, this is like famous stuff. It, this, this is the only culture in human history, as far as I know, at least in Western history, that would object to this. It, it, it was just taken for granted. And what he, it's what he says after the starting point that's the problem. But Because the, whatever the moral law within is, um, like I say, this culture, if only 22% believe in a moral law, then that means that only 22% have a clue what I'm talking about, probably. It, it's, it's a very difficult time in, in this cultural history. Starry heavens above and the moral law within. Act so that we treat others as ends, not as means to our ends. So, now, here's his argument. This moral obligation tells us that there are certain things that we ought, that we ought to do. Moral obligation, like treat other people as, as means, as ends rather than means, and treat other people as we like to be treated. There are certain, he calls them categorical imperatives. I know it's an awful, just imperatives, moral imperatives, moral commands, if you like. There are certain things. Now, here's his argument, and, and this is fundamental. We wouldn't 
feel that we ought to do these things if we can't do them. No one feels you ought to do something unless you can do it. To put it the other way, you don't feel you ought to, you know, cure cancer if you can't do it. You ought to feel you could try, but there are lots. Of, you don't feel like you you have to make your you know. Um, uh, nervous system function because it functions. There are certain things that we feel we ought to do. We feel we ought to obey the, these fundamental moral principles. There, there are lots of them, like don't kill and don't steal and don't, you know, injure babies and the poor and like it, it's basic stuff that all cultures seem to accept. World religions may differ in a lot of different ways, but they don't differ morally very much. It's just a base, and all cultures differ. But uh, morally, we're pretty consistent. And that's evidence that there just might be some kind of a moral law within, that human beings, it's always wrong to murder. There are exceptions when you're trying to protect your life or whatever, but there's certain moral imperatives. Uh, They're all stated in Ten Commandments of Moses way back when and and all the other religions. I've compared Moses one time to the the, the Koran, and it's the same thing. You can see exactly the same commandments there in these. And, and you can do it with almost every other religion as well. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't false testimony, all that stuff. Uh, there are certain differences. Now, if there are certain things we ought to, we feel that we ought to do, and that means we can do it. So to make a very long story short, that's my argument for free will. Now, you need to know the context, and in one sentence, this is a culture in 1800 that was denying that we had free will. They were saying that everything is predetermined by cause and effect. Right now, what you're thinking, what you're doing, has been caused by the immediate past. It was a world that was explained by the laws of physics and chemistry, by, by biology. It was Newton's clockwork universe, where everything was, was determined. There was no God these people believed in, most of them, in the 18th century, the, especially in France, and, and they were saying everything is determined. There is freedom, because if, if we feel we ought to do something, we can be assured that we're free to do it, or else we wouldn't feel the moral obligation to do it in the first place. There is nothing you feel you ought to do unless you absolutely are free to do it. And I think, I think he's right, despite all of the criticisms that have fallen along the way. Nobody feels an obligation to do something we can't do. We only feel an obligation to do something we can do. That's point number one, if you like, after acknowledging, we'll call the first point, there is a moral law. We feel this obligation. This can be number two, saying we feel we ought to do certain things. That means we're free to do it. So free will is established. That's a major victory. Not many people have ever tried to show that free will is true. I mean, we just assume we're free. But when you have a culture like ours, and it was starting three or 400 years ago, which started denying that we're free, when we have a culture like ours that says that everything is either determined by a god, which is, which is wrong, or everything is determined by physics and chemistry, even our thoughts and our actions, which is probably wrong, we need people standing up and saying, well, I've got an argument for free will. We have to do better than this, but it's at least we feel we ought to, so we're free to do it. Now, we have another ought. Now, this is where it gets a little controversial. Kant is saying, we also feel that we ought to achieve what he calls the supreme good. That's the meaning of life. We're after the supreme good. I won't give you the Latin and make it all complicated. It's a state of moral virtue, of being a good moral person, obeying the moral law within, and happiness. 
everybody's tried this, you know, just what's the meaning of life? What's it all about? What are we here for? This is a non-theist. Now, a theist would say it's to worship God, it's to thank God for life, but Kant, not being a theist, is happy to say it's about happiness. It's about, and you only get to happiness by being morally virtuous. Now, we feel that we ought to become morally virtuous and happy. That means we can. We can. Again, so there's another ought and we can. But the problem with this one is there's nobody who's morally virtuous and there's nobody that's really fulfilled or happy. Not, not completely. There's always, there's always all this, these problems in human life. So the third point is, if we're not achieving this state now, I know this is hard, but this is going to be abstract for two weeks. I'm sorry. Like these proofs are difficult. So it's, it's, you really have to dig in and uh, I'll do this as simply as I can. I'm giving you like 500 pages here in, 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 in maybe 600 words. Because we feel this ought, that we, we really feel it. If you, like, we know there's a moral law, and we know that we ought to obey it, and we know that we ought to become morally virtuous and happy, but we're not. So, there must be an, an afterlife, an immortal life. If we're not achieving this state now, see, we wouldn't feel the ought if it wasn't possible. But we do feel that we should be moral, and we should be happy because of that morality. It's not, it's not like a, a reward, but it, it's simply, that's, 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 that's a moral obligation. We feel. It's, it's like a, a necessity. Um, we feel this big, we, this ought to be the case, that we become morally, morally virtuous. But no one's becoming morally virtuous now, so there must be an afterlife where it comes about. So he thinks he has an argument, and we have other ones, this is an argument that there must be an afterlife. Now, here's the problem. Just arriving in an afterlife doesn't guarantee that we're going to achieve this sumum bonum, this state of, of the greatest good of moral virtue and happiness. There has to be a God in the afterlife to bring about this state, powerful enough, good enough, wise enough, to, to bring us to this state of moral virtue and happiness. Strangest argument for God on the planet, but that's uh, one of them. But it's like I say, 200 years and we're still trying to figure out is it right or wrong. So we feel an ought, that means it has to happen. It's possible and it should happen or we wouldn't feel it ought to happen. We feel we ought to be virtuous. It's, we're not being virtuous now, so there must be an afterlife. But just being in an afterlife doesn't guarantee anything. You need something, some powerful, someone who's, who's powerful enough, wise enough, virtuous enough itself, himself, to bring about this state. Having known that, done that one, here's, here's, here's a simple version of what we've done in the last 200 years to make this better. I'll throw out some names like uh, C.S. Lewis and a guy called True Blood. Um, not, many, not many do this one. You know when you see books on philosophy of religion, there's always a chapter on arguments for God's existence. Some people make the mistake of calling those proofs for God's existence, and then they're really just arguments because the minute you call them proofs for God's existence, it sounds like you have conclusive mathematical proof, but, and, and that's misleading. These are arguments. What I'm saying is, in most philosophy of religion books, this moral argument um, is left where Kant left it, and, uh, but there are some modern versions that, that are, I think are much, much better. For theists, as opposed to non-theists, people who don't believe in God, for people who believe in God, for theists, 
there is an objective moral law. That's assumed. It's not assumed on those stats, but I think that's because people don't know what the theology is. The theology says if you believe in God, you can assume there's an objective moral law. Non-theists, people who don't believe in God, don't believe in an objective moral law in general. That's why I just don't understand the stats again. It, like, all of these people, it should be 100% or 90% believing there's a God, 90% believing there's an objective moral law. But the people are not being told, obviously. I've, I've had people say, I don't know what you're talking about when you say the moral law. Like, what is it? The simple answer is, like I say, it's the Ten Commandments, it's the law of Jesus, love God, love your neighbor, um, you know, follow my... It's, it's just basic, basic obligations that all, all human beings feel. And like I say, every culture has felt these things. These are not social rules as much as moral rules. Social rules we can make up for various reasons, but moral obligations are deeper. They're, they're, they're saying that we should never kill. We should, I mean, we shouldn't steal. We shouldn't treat, treat orphans and widows badly. We shouldn't molest children. There's just basic, fundamental moral laws. It doesn't mean that people are not going to abuse those things. But you make a mistake when you say, well, that culture over there, I mean, they just murdered a whole bunch of people. Uh, or that culture over there, you know, kills their babies if they're female or whatever. Like, we wouldn't say that these are different moral laws. When you look at all the different cultures, like I say, they're, they're pretty consistent in their moral laws, but in their behavior, in their ability to follow these moral laws, sometimes you see some outrageous things. I'm not just sure, you know, we don't want to confuse what people actually do with what they probably feel within. I can't believe you can be in a culture in the middle of nowhere and you kill your firstborn child. It just, it just goes against everything that's holy, but that's, I guess there have been cultures like that. But that's not the general rule, that's, that, that's the exception. The general rule is that most people have the same moral feelings, and most religions have the same moral expression with various cultural practices. Like Hindus believe in reincarnation. Um, Christians and Muslims don't, let's say. And Hindus, therefore, don't eat cows because they may be reincarnated people going through, you know, reincarnated souls. But we do eat cow, most of us. Now, you could say, aha, so Hinduism and the West, this other culture, have completely different moral laws. One says... There's a moral law against eating cows, and the other says you can't eat cows. See, that's not the case. Um, the Hindus actually believe, like we believe, the real issue here is should you be eating your grandmother? And both cultures agree that the cow could be somebody related to you for the Hindu, and for us, there isn't anybody. It's just a cow. Like, the same moral law applies that we shouldn't be killing other people. Hindus just have a different religious belief. The moral law is the same. Don't kill other people. Don't abuse other people. I hope that didn't go too fast. There's, there's a whole, whole book on this one point about how grandma's a cow, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's trying to show that what you think are completely different moral laws are actually just social practices or religious, religious uh, beliefs uh, that have not, nothing to do with the moral law, in this case, about killing other people.
Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.